This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Having to wait to be able to make a decision on important care has gotten in the way of providing that care. The Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. On today's episode, HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt interviews Congresswoman Susan Delbene about a piece of legislation she sponsored that would streamline and standardize the prior authorization process for Medicare Advantage plans. Before we get to that, though, let's check in with Nick, along with HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack, to discuss the latest in healthcare finance news. Uh, hi, everyone. This is Nick Hutt. In this episode, Sean and I are discussing a couple of the big points you need to know about the 2022 final rule for the outpatient prospective payment system, uh, the payment update, and some new policies will be taking effect January 1st. Uh, just a quick point to start, the payment update comes out to 2% for hospitals that meet the usual quality reporting requirements. Although with the scheduled restoration of the 2% Medicare sequester and the scheduled 4% reduction stemming from the PAYGO clause in this year's COVID-19 relief legislation, providers should be preparing for an across-the-board cut to their Medicare payments if Congress doesn't act between now and the end of the year. But on the policy front, there's a big change to the inpatient-only list. Uh, Sean, can you tell our listeners about that? If everyone remembers, back in the 2021 OPPS final rule, CMS had adopted a policy to eliminate the IPO list over three years. And as part of that first phase of eliminating the IPO list, CMS removed 298 codes from the list beginning in 2021. So they really backed off on all of their criteria in looking at procedures and rolling those to the outpatient only list. You know, they had always weighed those against most outpatient departments were equipped to provide the service to the Medicare population. The simplest procedure described by the code was already being furnished in outpatient departments or the procedure was related to other codes that have already been removed from the IPO list. And then a couple others, the procedures being furnished in numerous hospitals on an outpatient basis, and the procedures can be appropriately and safely furnished in an ASC or an outpatient setting. So now CMS is coming back and saying those 298 codes that were slated to be removed from the 2021 rule did not meet those five normal criteria. So they're moving those back, Nick. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes down to the change in administration. Uh, it was CMS under the Trump administration that had begun the phase out of the IPO list. It's now the Biden administration that's saying, we don't agree with that policy. We think the IPO list largely should be restored to what it was before these changes were implemented. And just to specify, all services 
except for three that were removed from the IPO list this year, and that's nearly 300 in all, are being added back in 2022. So what do you think the upshot of all this is in terms of site-neutral payments? At face value, anyway, it seems like the concept is being dialed back with this change in approach. Yeah, I would agree, Nick. I think it's going to take CMS a little bit longer to get there on the site-neutral payments piece now. I mean, I think that you know that they're pumping the brakes here to make sure that all quality and and normal criteria are met before moving these procedures off the IPO list. So that will have an impact on site neutral payments. But I also think, you know, this is a good time for CMS. And it seems like CMS is looking to be more transparent because there were a lot of questions on why were these procedures picked to be removed from the IPPO list? And, you know, what was the, the attended rate setting for these procedures in an outpatient setting? Those are moot points now that they're being moved back. So I think they'll be more considerate and more, hopefully more transparent as they review procedures in the future, because we all know they will be reviewing procedures in the future on the IPO list and and moving those off to the OPPO list or the ASC list as providers are ready to perform those in those settings. Yeah, great point. This may just be sort of a delay in the changes that were initially implemented in last year's final rule. Um, And you touched on this, but a similar dynamic can be seen with the ambulatory surgical center covered procedures list. The Trump administration had added 267 procedures to the list for this year. All but 12 of those are being removed for 2022. And the current administration is reinstating the patient safety criteria that had determined when a procedure could be added to the list. Uh, Anything to add on that, Sean? No. And, you know, I think HFMA and AHA and, and most associations are, are supportive in that decision. You know, quality first, safety first, and ASCs are a great place to do many outpatient procedures. But keep in mind that the Medicare population is typically the most fragile population. So procedures that other folks or other age groups and other demographics are getting done in ASCs are really not the best choice at times for this population. So careful consideration when moving those to ASCs, making sure the ASCs are prepared and you're not getting folks bouncing from the ASC outpatient procedures back into an inpatient and readmitted as inpatient because something went wrong. Um, I think that's a good move. And I think most folks are supportive of that move. Absolutely. That definitely makes sense. All right. Well, great stuff, Sean. Everybody listening can see our coverage of the OPPS final rule at hfma.org slash news. And we're publishing an in-depth summary of the rule. You can find that in our regulatory resources section, uh, which HFMA members can access under the industry initiative tab at hfma.org. And you can also find that summary in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Nick. Have a happy Thanksgiving. In August of 2020, Congresswoman Susan Delbeni joined us to discuss her sponsorship of the Value in Healthcare Act. For today's episode, we invited the Congresswoman back to talk about a new piece of legislation she's sponsoring, the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act. Here's senior editor Nick Hutt with that interview, recorded November 3rd. I'm very pleased to be joined for this segment by Congresswoman Susan Delbeni. She represents Washington State's first district. And this year, she sponsored legislation called the Improving Seniors Timely Access to Care Act. The bill would streamline and standardize the way that Medicare Advantage plans use prior authorization. 
Uh, Congresswoman, thanks very much for joining our podcast. I imagine that many of our listeners can appreciate the rationale behind this legislation. What was your motivation for helping to draft this bill? Well, um, thanks for having me first. And I think it's pretty simple. Um, We know that too many people have had to wait to hear back on whether they were going to be allowed to receive care. You know, we have heard from physicians and nurses that have struggled a lot to meet the demands, especially during the pandemic. And then for a provider having to wait to be able to make a decision on important care has gotten in the way of providing that care. So the bill is pretty straightforward. um, And I think the title is pretty self-descriptive in that we're talking about seniors timely access to care. And so there's some simple things that we do. One, we establish an electronic prior authorization process In this world, you would think we wouldn't need to use fax machines. We could use technology to help speed things up. We require Health and Human Services to establish a process so that there can be real-time decisions for items and services that are routinely approved. There's no reason that there has to be a long process on things where the decision could be made quickly. We want to make sure there's transparency. So we require Medicare Advantage plans to report to CMS on the extent of their use of prior authorization and the rate of approvals or denials, because all that data will help us make sure we protect the program going forward. And then we encourage plans to adopt prior authorization programs that adhere to evidence-based medical guidelines in consultation with physicians. And we want to make sure that things are approved quickly. We want to make sure that there's consistency in what information is needed that providers need to give to insurance company All that's critically important so that we can speed things up. So pretty straightforward, strongly bipartisan. We have a strong bipartisan majority because this impacts so many people. Such a straightforward thing for us to do. Absolutely. And, you know, going electronic with prior authorization, at least across the board in Medicare Advantage, is something I know a lot of people in healthcare would love to see happen. Do you have any sense of the degree to which infrastructure is already in place at hospitals and health plans to allow that to be implemented relatively easily and, and quickly? I, th- I think that this is something that, especially if we provide uh, standardization, that's so important. Um, one of the challenges that's been in place right now is that doctors are going back and forth, um, being asked for more information. So it makes it harder and harder for them to just get a result or an answer. Um, So we want to make sure that instead of having to go back and forth on requests, if things are electronic and standardized, that makes things much more automated and should make it easier for doctors. The technology can be done. Um, Some of it will need to be built, but we definitely have states that have moved forward. For example, my state of Washington has started to address this too. So we want to help people get there faster. Gotcha. And you touched on the fact that the bill would require real-time authorization, which uh, seems long overdue in in some respects. What do you think the impact of that provision would be? The bill defines real-time decisions definitely with flexibility in mind. We direct the secretary to consider current medical practice, current technology, and industry standards. We want to avoid prescribing that prior authorization requests be completed in a certain amount of time that we know that there's a possibility that we could allow for instant approvals on things that are routine, which is partly what we've been working for. 
But we also make it very clear that patients shouldn't wait for care that is urgent. Um, we want to make sure they get answer right away. That leads to better outcomes for patients. And obviously, that would be the best thing medically. So we don't want to leave patients in the lurch. As you mentioned, the bill also would establish various transparency requirements for MA health plans. Looking at the whole package, do you anticipate any pushback, I suppose, from anyone in the industry? I'm thinking specifically about insurers. Or is it too early in the process to really see how that's going to shake out? Well, in this day and age, when folks talk about how challenging it is to have bipartisanship, we have strong bipartisanship. We have over a majority in the House of Representatives, a majority of members supporting the bill. We have worked with insurers every step of the way to make sure that this bill can work. We have strong support from physicians, uh, nurses, all of the folks who spend more time than they want to sending papers back and forth who want to focus on doing the most important thing, which is caring for patients. And the transparency that we put together is very fair. Um, We want to make sure that reporting um, goes to the secretary of HHS so that we have information going forward about how we can continue to improve the program. Gotcha. And and you mentioned the bill has majority and, and bipartisan support in the House. A companion bill, also bipartisan, has been introduced in the Senate. With that said, what pathway do you see the legislation taking as far as potential passage? Any sort of time frame you're hoping for? I want to get it moving as soon as possible. Um, we have strong support. This is definitely uh, the strong need out there in terms of helping patients make sure that they have timely access to care. So we are continuing to work with our colleagues and hope that after we get some of the bills passed that we're working on right now, that we can start moving on legislation like this, especially legislation like this that's strongly bipartisan. All right. And we're actually welcoming you back to our podcast. You joined us uh, in the summer of 2020 to discuss the Value in Healthcare Act, which would enhance the Medicare ACO program, among other provisions. Uh, Any update on, on that? Well, we definitely know that providers that are participating in alternative payment models are driving the change in healthcare, a change that we very desperately need. And so our legislation makes sensible modifications to the existing APM parameters and encourages more providers to participate, which will be so important in terms of helping make sure that we continue to move in this direction. Once we get past the legislation that we're working on right now with respect to build back better infrastructure, this is another piece of legislation that'll be important. I think parts of it could be included in a year-end package as we look to pull things together on a variety of issues at the end of this year. So as we look at doing that, I think this is another piece that can be included. The QP threshold fix, for example, is one piece that could be included. I think if more members were aware of the success of ACOs and alternative payment models and how they're improving quality and saving money, it really becomes common sense to advance policies like the policies we have included in the Value and Healthcare Act. So we're continuing to work with other members of Congress, and hopefully we'll be able to build support to get this one moving as well. Great. And finally, I wanted to ask as long as we have you about an area of concern for our members, and that's looming Medicare payment cuts for 2022 that could total 6% for hospitals and almost 10% for physicians relative to 2021 payments. Can you see a possibility that Congress look into offering some level of relief, maybe as part of the year-end legislation you were just referring to? 
So on two things, um, first on PAYGO, the Senate, it's important the Senate give this across the finish line. The House passed that, but was blocked by Mitch McConnell um, regarding the physician fee schedule. Um, the rule on the physician fee schedule came out last night, and we continue to look for feedback from folks on that. But given the pandemic and uncertainty for everyone, especially providers, I'd like to see a legislative fix for this to make sure that uh, that providers are in a strong place during an incredibly difficult time. So that'll certainly bear watching over the next couple of months, as will the uh, Improving Seniors Access to Timely Healthcare Act and the uh, Value in Healthcare Act. Congresswoman Dalbene, thank you for your time and for sharing your perspectives with our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and you can hear him on a special episode next week with Dr. Brian Castrucci of the DeBeaumont Foundation. Thanks to everyone who came out to our annual conference in Minneapolis earlier this month. It was so great to be together again and meet some of you in person who I'd only spoken with on Zoom. So let's do it all again in Denver next June. You can check out hfma.org for details. But let's hope we can talk before that. You can reach out to our team anytime at podcast at hfma.org. I, I got to hit my quota of flubs here. <laughs>